You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hello, Blogging Heads Nation. Uh, welcome to the post-election edition of Dresbert. I'm Daniel Dresner. I'm a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and I write spoiler alerts for the Washington Post. Good morning. I'm Heather Hurlbert. I run New Models of Policy Change at New America. And I think the first thing that's important to say is um, I can't see Professor Dresner, but I at least still have all my hair. So we're here, we haven't torn out our hair, um, we're still talking to each other, the world has not yet ended, deep breaths I everyone. would always talk to you, Heather, I mean, no matter what, let's get that off, you know, I, I, nothing's going to change that. <laughs> so we thought, um, in an effort to, of uh, sort of modeling the kind of accountability that, that we want to see in the world, uh, this is the what we got wrong and what we got right, uh, mea culpa to you, the viewers edition. That is correct. So I guess I have to start. Um, you like how well, I did that? Yeah, it was very good of you. Um, I mean, the, the most obvious thing I got wrong was that uh, I did not think Donald Trump was going to either win the GOP nomination or uh, I was skeptical that he was going to win the, the presidential campaign. Um, I, I will mildly defend myself and say that, that one of the advantages of, of reading people like Nate Silver and Sean Trende was that... Um, was that I thought there was a one in three chance of Trump winning. Um, you know, if you recall the, the, the weekend before the election, there was all this criticism. I think Ryan Grimm of the Huffington Post actually wrote an article arguing that Nate Silver was stacking the deck uh, in, favor of a Trump, uh, in favor of Trump's odds, which was mildly absurd. Um, I was convinced it could happen. But I think what I most badly underestimated was the degree to which normal campaign logic did not apply this year. Um, you know, throughout the entire arc of the campaign, one of the things I argued was that Trump's surrogates on television were just awful, um, that they did not really make much sense and that they were not of high quality. Trump had no real policy expertise to speak of. Indeed, um, by all reports, uh, he shuttered his policy shop uh, in August. Um, and while I don't think policy is the only thing that decides an election, I do think that it, it uh, you know, it, it can affect people, certainly. And then finally, I thought that in the end, you know, voters would take a look at Donald Trump's temperament as displayed throughout the campaign and decide that this is not a man who should be entrusted with the nuclear codes. Um, and if the exit polls are accurate, and let me stress, I have no idea if the exit polls are accurate. Um, there is a fair amount of evidence, as, as Jack Schaefer, I think, argued at Politico, that the American people actually pretty much processed all this stuff. It's not that they, they denied that this was true. A majority of Americans are suspicious of Donald Trump's temperament, um, don't necessarily trust Donald Trump, but there was a significant fraction of those people who said, I'm still going to vote for him anyway. Um, and so that was the thing that, that uh, I underestimated. And I, I clearly overestimated things like Hillary Clinton's get-out-the-vote operation. I thought that in the end, the fact that she was better organized on the ground would lead to maybe a 1% or 2% bump in how she did compared to uh, the state-level polling on the battleground states, and the exact opposite occurred, uh, that, that her support uh, was much less robust. Yeah, so my mea culpa is that there are, in looking now, a number of places where sort of some fundamentals did hold or some things that we knew were true, and I feel that I am quite guilty of having... Um, seen things that that I should have known to be true and just assuming or deciding that they weren't true. Uh, so um, 
thing number one is the turnout issue. And, and this, um, you know, this is where I think I have to plead guilty to, to living in the bubble. And I definitely did not understand that, you know, half of our fellow citizens didn't, didn't feel like bothering to vote. You know, the, the turnout figures, 49% of public didn't vote. 25.6% voted for Clinton, 25.5% voted for Trump. So I, in right. no... Donald Trump, I think Donald Trump got fewer votes than either Mitt Romney or John McCain did. Yes, yes. And Clinton got, um, what is it, 6 million fewer votes than Obama did? Am what? I at 6 million or 6%? I'm, I'm sorry. I, I apologize, viewers. It's been a low sleep week. But I totally missed that enthusiasm gap. Although, again, if I had been more able to take seriously the sort of these are the two worst candidates ever, which because obviously that isn't my personal view, I discounted um, the number of times it got written. So that's, I think, mistake number one I made. Mistake number two, I mean, we know that the American public hates third terms, that it's very difficult for any party to win a third term. And the way that kind of fundamental of American politics expresses itself is in this sort of more of the same. She's not a change candidate. She doesn't have new any, any new ideas. She didn't have a vision. Um, again, all of which things I sort of heard and I thought, well, that's but all of that's not true. But it, it's expressing, you know, this kind of fundamental truth about American politics. And I got to say, I just brushed right on over over that one. Um, and then the, the, the third thing that happened that I am really kicking myself about because I wrote a couple of articles about this in 2014 and 2015. And oh, I, I know where you're going with Yeah. This. So um, in 2014, the Republicans, um, with Kellyanne Conway as one of the architects of this, ran some really rather clever, although I would argue quite destructive, campaigns in which they used a series of ads really... Um, scaring voters on national security issues, sometimes in quite ridiculous ways. You remember the um, the Hezbollah fighters infected with Ebola that ISIS was going to send into the U.S.? Um, I mean, and we laughed at that, but everybody who ran those ads won with the exception of uh, Scott Brown. So, you know, that strategy worked. And I think I think that it works in, in two ways. Uh, one is that it pulls white women back to the Republican candidate, and two is it discourages turnout. Um, and right. I, I, I thought this goes back to the. Sorry, so I just wanted to say. I mean, uh, Joshua Green and Sasha Isenberg, I think, wrote a great piece in Bloomberg uh, about two weeks ago about Trump's data operation, where part of the the element of that was is that there was a conscious strategy by the Trump uh, media team to put out ads with the idea suppressing is the wrong word. It was to depress. Um, they, he used the, the quote was yeah. suppressed, but the, but it's actually depressed. Depress. In other words, right? Because suppress, suppress implies legal tactics. You're saying right, right? and that's and not what yeah. or illegal yeah. tactics. Agree, or, agree. Th that's not what they were saying. What mm -hmm. they were saying is they wanted to put out negative ads about Clinton that would depress the turnout of her demographics, namely African Americans, minorities, other uh, voters who might otherwise have been inclined to vote for for Clinton. Yep, and we all. So number one, we all missed that that was happening. And number two, because it was coming out of the mouth of Trump and seemed so ridiculous, um, we, you know, it, it just didn't occur to me. It didn't occur to me that it was happening or that it could work. And, and in fact, um, my colleagues at New America and I talked about this and, and Mark Schmidt wrote a piece. But I mean, I, I take responsibility for this point of view as well, saying, oh, look, Kellyanne Conway is presiding over the dismantling of the coalition of Republican women that she helped assemble. But in fact, 
Um, Clinton got the same proportion of white women that Obama got against Romney. Um, and because I know there's a piece in Time today about how women deserted Clinton, blah, blah, I actually think, I'm just going to pivot a little here, it's very important to say that specifically, it, you know, black women came home to Clinton over 90%, just amazing numbers. I haven't seen a breakdown for uh, Latino women, uh, white women, as I said, it was, it was about the same, although that's very strips, uh, broken out by education. Um, Clinton won white women with college degrees. Uh, and interestingly, one of the, I mean, she lost men, she lost um, non-college men by almost 50 points, non-college white men by almost 50 points. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, her um, support among black men was 10 points lower than Obama's was. So you can right. see there Same were, with Latinos, if memory yeah, serves. There were, there were certain places where this set of very gendered and very related to, to national security, to our issues, set of tactics really really worked against her and we all we all saw them happening and I certainly didn't didn't perceive that they were happening. Um, no, I think that's uh, that's fair. I mean, I'm tr the only thing I will say this isn't a defense per se, but I mean, again, it is worth stressing the degree to which the actual outcome did not just surprise uh, Democrats, but I would argue also surprised Republicans. Um, yep. including Trump's campaign. I mean, all my understanding is that uh, from the second part of the the Green and Isenberg uh, study is that they, Trump's own data team only gave him a 30% chance of winning um, on Tuesday, uh, which, and, and, you know, which suggests that this was a legitimate surprise, not for partisan reasons, but literally because the data was didn't necessarily support the argument that Trump was actually going to get more votes. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the other thing that I think is, is terribly hard and that I'm finding terribly frustrating is that it's, it's a very normal thing, both to want to learn lessons from what happened, which is a charitable way of putting it, and also to want to assign blame. And you're sort of seeing a lot of both going around. But at a certain point, this is so weirdly overdetermined because you can decide, mm -hmm. you can decide to blame Jill Stein and Gary Johnson. You can decide to blame the 110,000 people who didn't put a name, who didn't vote the top of the ticket in Michigan, which is a fascinating phenomenon. Um, you can decide to blame, you know, some of the demographic shifts I just referenced. You can decide to blame voter suppression, actual voter suppression in North Carolina, where African-American turnout was down 5 percent. Right. And it does seem like some unknowable chunk of that was people who would have liked to vote. Um, yep. So I'm almost again, I just I go back to I go back to, to fundamental number one, the public hates third terms. And I, I'm also going to say here, as much as I am devastated by this result and it is bad for America and it is bad for lots of individual human beings, the public is not wrong to hate third terms in the abstract. I just I do. I do got to say that. Um, yeah. No, no, no. There's a there's a valid reason for why you want uh, you want changes in the executive branch, uh, you know. This, this country has a lot of liberals, has a lot, a lot more conservatives, and you know you need to have uh, some degree of of, uh, of turnover in the executive branch. That's not an unhealthy thing. Yeah. So I, um, I want to pivot, Dan, though, to something where you and I. Um, what's an interest? I mean, I think we can we can both claim that we were right, which is actually kind of a, a nice sort of kumbaya moment. Um, the, in every blogging heads we've done this season, we've we've talked about the Never Trump movement among Republicans, and who you mm -hmm. know who would who would renege off that movement, 
And I've been quite cynical and said all along that people would, and you've been quite hopeful and said all along that people wouldn't. And now here we are, and it looks like we were we were both right in that actually <laughs> um, the Republican intellectuals, Republican foreign policy intellectuals specifically, were really kind of the last people standing and still out there very publicly right up to and on election day and election night, um, very publicly making clear their opposition. I mean, I'm thinking of people like Max Boot um, mm -hmm. and yourself and Bob Kagan, Bob Kagan uh, Corey Shockey at Stanford. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. At the same time, uh, it is clear now you have, you know, people um, sort of lining up. Um, I mean, there was a, a very interesting quote by from Lan He Chen, who was Romney's yeah. policy advisor, who I don't believe was ever a never Trumper, but um, no, he was basically, to be fair. and he's not basically yeah. used. And he's not really a foreign policy, but guy basically either, so. used Politico to, to advertise his availability to the to the Trump administration. Um, um, so you you now not only have sort of a big whisper game in Washington about who's who's going in, who's already talking to them, but you also now it's starting to come out that there were some people who who sort of went over in September and October and said, oh, well, somebody better be talking to them. So, you know, I mean, I think Brian McGrath, who uh, along with Elliot Cohen was the architect for a lot of the Never Trump, uh, the, the original Never Trump national security letter. Um, as McGrath pointed out, I think that the the letter made it clear that the idea was we will not help Trump during the campaign. We do not think he is the right choice for president. Um, I don't think the letter precluded anyone from deciding after that that they would necessarily go into, you know, if, if Trump won, do you, you know, go into an administration then? Um, you know, I think there's a number of issues here. The first, the first and most important one is whether Donald Trump will actually or Trump's transition team is going to want to hire any of these people. Um, you know, Trump prizes loyalty above uh, almost everything, is my understanding from everything I've read about uh, and heard about him during this campaign. So, you know, the never Trump movement is literally an expression of disloyalty in that sense. Um, you would it would be understandable if uh, if the Trump team did not necessarily want to hire that many people. On the other hand, there is every little bit of evidence that's coming out suggests that, the, as I said, the Trump team themselves did not think they were going to win. And because they did not think they were going to win, they probably are far further behind in terms of transition team planning than, let's say, the Clinton team, which I assume had pretty much a blueprint in place um, to start uh, the day after Election Day um, to know what they were going to do. So as a result, you know, Trump's team is already playing catch up on this, you know, even for only 48 hours after the election. Uh, now, to be fair, all transitions are rocky. You know, that there is all transitions have bumps in the road. Obama's did. George W. Bush's did, Bill Clinton's did, even George H. W. Bush's from Ronald Reagan's did. Um, so that that's not entirely uh, surprising. The unique problem in the Trump case is, was well, there's two of them, which is you have to hire people to fill certain positions. Um, and we're not talking about cabinet-level positions. We're talking about sub-cabinet positions, um, you know, assistant secretaries of state, deputy assistant secretaries of state. Um, you need an, inf you know, you need uh, political appointees. And as you pointed out, the foreign policy community was pretty much, you know, uh, implacably opposed to Donald Trump for a variety of reasons, including what Donald Trump said about foreign policy during the campaign. Um, so I, I don't think Trump will have any difficulty finding or picking cabinet level positions. I mean, he's had a few loyalists. Um, the question is what's going to happen, you know, at the second, you know, the deputy level, the assistant secretary level, the staffing level. 
Yeah, and there are a couple things that I think are, are worth pointing out. Um, that now that he has won, um, as soon as sort of word gets around what the address is, um, the uh, you know his transition team will be deluged by resumes from people in oh, yeah. industry, people in academia. Um, you know, we in the and this, I mean, honestly, this is one of the things that I think we all need to learn out of this experience. Um, we in the um, Beltway and Beltway Connected national security community tend to think that we're more irreplaceable than we may in fact be. So I wouldn't, um, I mean, I, I've seen some kind of, oh, the government will ground to a halt because he won't be able to hire assistant secretaries. Well, no. Now, what may happen is that they won't be able to get people clearances. And so, you know, given, I mean, the, the huge problems, some of its own making, but not all of its own making, that the Obama administration has had in filling positions, even unconfirmed positions in a, in a timely manner, you know, you could, you could imagine a, a scenario where the Trump people, or I should say the cabinet level appointees actually have to go and say, look, some of you, please don't leave because we can't replace you. Um, it would not surprise me if, if that, I mean, and to be fair, if memory serves, when Obama came in in 2008, there were a few Bush appointees who were asked to stay, I mean, not uh, beyond Bob Gates, obviously, but there were, there were sub-cabinet people who were asked to hang around for a while until the confirmation and, process. And that, in fact, through. is a fairly normal thing that, that happens in a, in a, in a transition-friendly or, or hostile. Um, the other yeah. point that I think is, is worth making, um, and then maybe we can transition to gossiping about cabinet appointments a little bit, um, is that you do have some names being tossed around for big national security jobs that are pretty well-respected. And so you could, it'll get a lot easier for people, I think, if instead of saying, I'm going to work for Donald Trump, you say, well, I'm going to work for Steve Hadley, or I'm right. going to work for Bob Corker. Um, so, and then of course- So I would, so there's a, there's, there's a flip side to that, which is, I, you're right, there are some names that if they are, I mean, I think, and, and actually, I think this is the crucial, this is actually gonna be the crucial uh, variable to determine the degree to which you have sort of the traditional GOP foreign policy apparatus decide to go work for this administration, which is the names you just threw out, Steve Hadley and Bob Corker, you know, these people are generally respected inside the Beltway. You know, they have reputations of being, you know, competent foreign policy people um, or people who care about the issue, if nothing else. Um, you're right. I could see a fair number of, of people deciding they want to go work for those people. Uh, then on the other hand, there's John Bolton. Uh, who has also been bandied about uh, to be Secretary of State. There is Michael Flynn, who I assume is going to wind up being National Security Advisor. Um, these people certainly also have resumes that would suggest they can be confirmed and so forth. Uh, their reputations are slightly different, though. Um, and in some ways, I think you're, you're correct that the, the cabinet appointments, are, in some ways, will be a powerful signal not just of what you will be asked to do if you serve in a Trump administration, but literally, what are the policies of the Trump administration going to be? You know, does Donald Trump, you know, tell South Korea and Japan, you should absolutely get nuclear weapons now because we're going to be scaling back? Or does he not do that? Does he tell NATO, you know, you need to ramp up your security contributions, otherwise, you know, you can forget the Article 5 commitment, or does that not happen? Well, um, well look, 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 I'm actually, I'm going to step in and play the let's not scaremonger role here. Um, no, and, I don't mean to no, scaremonger. But look, I mean, it's unclear. Let's, let's be clear. Trump called South Korea's president and mm -hmm. said, 
excuse me, he was committed to the security guarantee. He called the prime right. minister of Japan. I mean, he's made what, like 10 calls? I mean, it was, um, the, the Brits are, are freaking. I think he's talked to Justin Trudeau as well. Yeah. And, and the Brits yeah. are freaking out because I gather he called Ireland before he called London. Um, <laughs> um, I'm not okay. totally sure I have that right. But anyway, Theresa May was, was number not, was re reported to have been number nine on the list, which is going to, um, which is, you know, and there sort of this brings me to my next point. That's an interesting bit of I mean, it's a little more extreme than I think a, a Democrat would have done. But, you know, the extent to which um, Barack Obama has repeatedly signaled to the UK, look, you know, the special <laughs> relationship doesn't replace relationships with the rest of the world and that he was repeatedly criticized by one wing of the Republican foreign policy establishment for for not understanding the special relationship. I mean, he was criticized in pretty racialized terms, actually, about that, which brings me back to Hadley and Corker. Um, Hadley and Corker are are very well respected members of the Republican National Security Establishment, but neither of them is from the hawk, more hawkish end of it. Um, hmm. Both of them, in fact, are are considered to be um, how can I put this? If not sympathetic to the Iran nuclear deal, at least not interested in blowing it up for the sake of blowing it up. Not implacably not opposed. Implacably given opposed. That the deal I mean, Cor existence. Corker Corker let it go through ultimately. Yeah. And Hadley, you know, in the second Bush term could have, I mean, the second Bush term looked at the options with respect to Iran and decided not to push very hard um, on the military side. So so it's it's interesting. And furthermore, vetoed an Israeli proposal for them to yes, hit as we Iran. as we now know. So yeah. um, I I want to be clear, I am not um, I'm not trying to say, oh, this isn't that bad. Um, there's a lot of angst. There's a lot of angst among Democrats right now, uh, sort of divided that the risk that if you say, oh, you know, we all need to sort of man up and and work with him, that that is selling out the people who are most afraid and vulnerable right now. So I want to stress I'm not saying that, but we are going to see, you know, imagining cabinet meetings with Corker and Hadley on one side of the room and Bolton and Gingrich on the other. Um, <laughs> that, you know, and, and I, I also noticed uh, that there's supposedly already internal fighting about who's going to be chief of staff, but. Right, Steve Bannon or Rince Rince That Rince, is going to uh, be a hell of a fight for somebody to referee. And, and I <laughs> just purely as a human being, my, uh, you know, my. I have great faith that Ivanka Trump will be the. Uh, will make the right decision. Oh, I am um, careful there. I, I actually would not doubt Ivanka's ability to, to, to bang heads if, if necessary. No, I was being sarcastic but, there. Yeah. But, no, but I, but I do, like, again, these, um, you know, what I think you, you could end up having is actually a, a foreign policy that, that does look more like Republican restraint um, punctuated by fits of uh, irrational exuberance. Well, let me put it. So let me put it this way. I, here's the. I, I first of all, I want to be clear. I wasn't trying to scaremonger before. I was just trying to say that we 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 have a lot of Donald Trump's rhetoric on the campaign, and we honestly don't know what you know is going to wind up being implemented and what won't be. I would suggest that if it winds up, you know, I think there's there's one of two ways this can play out. You know, if as it turns out, Trump appoints Michael Flynn to be his national security advisor, but then employs, as you say. Uh, you know, Hadley and Corker um, at Defense and State, I think you're going to see, you know, basically a, a replay of what has happened in previous Republican administrations when you actually had a weak chief executive. 
um, which is to say the first term of Bush's administration, George W. Bush's administration, and to some extent the second term of Ronald Reagan's, um, which is there's going to be a lot of bureaucratic infighting because um, Michael Flynn and John Bolton are not you know, not uh, not wallflowers in this sense. They're going to have strong opinions. Um, Hadley and Corker might have strong opinions, and I think you're going to see a lot of bureaucratic set-tos in that sense. That, I'm, um, I'm going to interrupt you there for viewers who may not remember this, but um, in August 2001, um, there were Washington was buzzing with how ineffective the Bush administration was, how there were big scandals and messes at the Pentagon that Rumsfeld was not mm -hmm. able to cope with, that everybody was fighting all the time, that the team was really ineffective. So I find indeed. I think there was a story that came out on September 11th, spec but in time, I want to say, speculating that Donald Rumsfeld was going to retire. Yeah. So I find that yeah, that comparison is fascinating and also terrifying, frankly, because of course the world doesn't just let you alone to have your infighting. Right. The alternative, by the way, is that it's not Hadley and Corker. That it winds up being people like John Bolton and Jeff Sessions. Um, who wind up taking the top cabinet positions, in which case you actually do have a more ideologically unified cabinet, uh, but one that is going to pursue foreign policies that um, might be somewhat perceived as somewhat more problematic, let's say. Um, somewhat, you know, I, I would describe it as sort of unilaterally hawkish. Uh, and, you know, we will see how this goes. The truth is we don't know at this point. Um, we honestly don't know... Uh, who's going to get those cabinet-level positions. And we, we, I think the biggest known unknown is the extent to which Donald Trump himself winds up being the adjudicator or how much does he delegate. Um, I mean, if I had to bet, I would assume he's going to delegate as much as humanly possible. Um, all of the evidence suggests he doesn't have the attention span to handle these kinds of things. Um, and he doesn't want to read the necessary briefings to be able to do these things. But I'm willing to have my mind changed on that. So another point that um, is relevant here is that historically, um, first-term presidents, first-term presidents usually want to do their domestic priorities first, and I right. see no reason to think Trump would be would be any different. And I think there was a report yesterday that in his meeting with the Hill that like he his top three priorities that he listed were I want to say border security, taxes, and infrastructure yeah. and you know with no the border security is to some extent foreign policy but but not the way he's thinking of it and so in that sense foreign policy will be on the back burner. yeah so so there um you know the uh, but the the other side of that is that traditionally first-term presidents are very much led by their national security advisor and their secretary of state um so so then you circle back to the appointments the other thing i wanted to say though is that um you could one can easily imagine um, specifically the the repeal and replace Obamacare um, yeah. taking up you know something close to the amount of time and energy that actual Obamacare did in the in Obama's first term, you know in which case there's just not a lot of bandwidth left anywhere for for major for major foreign policy activity and I think um, you know that. I mean, it's not, it's not an, it, it, that dramatically affected what Obama got done on foreign policy his first term. You know, there's the famous Rahm Emanuel quote about Gitmo, you know, don't bother me with your flock of Canada geese while I'm trying to land a 747. Um, I think there were a few F-bombs in that sentence when Rahm originally said it. But yeah. you think about how complicated it's going to be for um, the, and how many of the divisions within the Republican Party it's going to lay bare to try to come up with something that keeps the parts of Obamacare that are popular 
especially popular with with the voters who turned out and, and won this election for Republicans up and down the ticket and satisfy the fiscal hawks in the Republican Party? Because, by the way, the parts that are popular are the expensive parts. I, can I just say, I mean, let me interject here. This is the worst. I mean, as I understand it, fiscal hawks are going to be the big losers in this campaign um, because there is every evidence to suggest that, uh, you know, the fact that Trump mentioned infrastructure spending is, is you know, on the camp uh, in his victory speech, um, the fact that, you know, there is much greater enthusiasm in the GOP for tax cuts than necessarily uh, fiscal probity. I'm assuming the deficit's going to explode. So I'm um, to me there. I'm going to make a prediction here. Having gosh, boy, I didn't even I didn't even repent for 20 minutes before I started making new predictions. Look at me. Um, I like the idea of the, I like the idea of a pundits anonymous. By the way. <laughs> You know, notion of hi, my name's Dan. I haven't made a prediction. You know, it's been it's been twenty minutes since my last political prediction. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. I you know, hi, but I want to do it. I want it <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm, I, it, it's hard. You know, I read the news and I keep wanting to make those predictions, and it feels so good to make those predictions. And then you do one, and then you do another, and then you do a third one, and then you're really rolling, and then you're like fantasizing about being on television, and then it turns out you're wrong again. You're just wrong again, and then you're sobbing in front of your laptop as you're reading. That was eerily easy to that, do. That okay, good? sorry, go Does ahead. That feel good? Yeah, it's exactly. Um, <laughs> so, okay, so I will make a few observations, rather. Than, um, <laughs> um, observations, yes. The Republicans who are coming back to Congress, we will have lost a few of the more establishmenty types and where there are new Republicans, they tend to be less establishmenty types. Um, I'm Which kind is a of, trend that's been going on for the last yeah, 10 years. Yeah, I'm kind of eschewing the Tea Party label, and I haven't, I haven't yeah. really seen another good label yet. But of the, while the Republican base, I think, demonstrated that it doesn't care as much about fiscal restraint as it does about things that it likes, um, mm -hmm. You are still electing a non-trivial number of members of Congress who care intensely about fiscal restraint and who, you know, while some of them are going to feel very indebted to Donald Trump for saving their bacon and bringing them to D.C. or back to D.C., there's a whole other swath that don't feel even slightly indebted to him. And the question that I will pose as an interesting question rather than a prediction is um, how long um, victory is a good disciplinarian and keeps those folks in line and how long it is before some, some proposal causes them to, to rebel. And I, you know, my read is that could be anywhere between three months and three years. It's a valid question and we don't know. I mean, the other thing is, is the degree to which expectations will have shifted because of the way the election you know, played out, which is the fact is the Republicans now control the Senate, the House and the presidency. You know, in these circumstances, you expect stuff to get done um, in the same way that Obama, when in his first two years of office, got a fair amount accomplished legislatively um, because all three, you know, the, the legislative and executive branches were controlled by the same party. So um, the interesting the, the thing that is remains legitimately unknown, I think, is to what extent does Trump's voters, what will it take for Trump's voters to turn on him? Um, 
And, and here I actually think it's a legitimately an open question, because on the one hand, you can argue that a fair number of them are obviously you know, fiercely loyal to the man himself um, and can explain away a lot of what he does. But, you know, Donald Trump remains the most unpopular uh, major party nominee in, in history. And there were a fair number of people who voted for him that clearly don't like him very much. Um, and so one wonders if, as it turns out, things don't get done. Do you see those voters, you know, get disgusted and decide, OK, you had your chance and that's it, um, you know, which would lead to a potential changes in the, you know, uh, and, and pressure on Republican uh, in, incumbents or, or the Republican Party in the, in the midterms and then obviously in 2020. But I, I, I have to think there is a political argument to be made that if you are Trump, and certainly if you're the White House staff, you want spending to go up um, because it will politically sell, because those are the things that voters notice, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it. So I, I don't deny that fiscal hawks have some seniority in Congress. I don't think, I, let me put it this way, I, I, do you think that Paul Ryan comes out of this election stronger or weaker? Yes. <laughs> Fair enough. No, because on the one hand, you know, he was able to survive, but everybody saw what, you know, what happened, how he survived. And, um, you know, it's now, I think everyone thinks he serves at Trump's pleasure. Um, and if it's perceived that, um, you know, right now, Nobody's gonna. Nobody's gonna. The, the threat of a challenge seems to have seems to have melted away, um, but um, it's not as if anyone thinks anymore that he has a strong independent base, right? That he can that he can go back to. So, you know, the the irony of this is that he is now he is now going to have to prove he can deliver that caucus with a whole lot of people looking over his shoulder. And, um, you know, that is, that is not an easy thing, easy thing to do. So, I mean, on the one hand- No, it's an awful no, job. And on the one hand, I mean, it's hard not to say he comes out stronger because he's been looking so catastrophically weak for what, like 10 months now? But mm. um, this is a hell of a way to come out stronger. You know, I, I mean, it's uh, it's going to be and, and I should I should also add just while we're while we're talking sort of personalities on the Hill, um, you know, the Democrats switch out Harry Reid for Chuck Schumer. Mm -hmm. um, and there you actually switch from a more restrained set of views on national security to a more uh, interventionist set of views on national security. So so that'll be interesting. And then you're going to have ferocious infighting uh, everywhere else. And a bunch of new folks coming in who, um, to greater or lesser degree, either either don't have foreign policy views or have foreign policy views that they've very carefully kept to themselves. Um, mm. So, you know, you right now, for example, this crazy idea that the battle for the head of the DNC is going to be between Howard Dean and Keith Ellison. Um, my understanding is it's Ellison. Schumer already endorsed Yeah, Ellison. I mean, I don't know what Dean yeah. was doing. and But but this is just a point sort of to remind viewers that um, Howard Dean, among other things, in his post-electoral life, has been a shill for um, an Iranian cult come resistance group called the MEK. 
So, mm -hmm. so you just because you have never heard of any of these folks in the context of national security policy does not mean that they don't come in with some really interesting, um, some really interesting views. Um, Ellison, by the way, I've worked with a bit in the past, and I find him, ah. I find him very impressive. On and no, I mean, I, I'm sure you've seen this tweet that's gone viral, which is the the when Ellison back in the summer of 2015 said. I think Donald Trump's going to be the the GOP nominee, and like everyone else around the like ABC this week or whatever roundtable was laughing at him. Um, I, I've seen that like a, God knows how many times over the last forty eight hours. No, and Allison's one of these people who, because he's a fantastic natural politician, his instincts on international issues are also pretty sound. Um, you know, because he sort of is a person who is able to look at a situation and say, okay, what are the power dynamics here? And what are, how are people going to, going to respond to each other? So, um, he, of the other, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to, uh, I was also going to say one point, last point on Schumer, which is uh, you're correct on terms of talking about national security. I think the other interesting thing is that on foreign economic policy, uh, Schumer is going to be a little more simpatico with Trump, um, than people realize. I mean, Schumer is, you know, Kind of a protectionist when it comes to trade. I mean, he wanted to pass that bill punishing China for currency manipulation back in the first term of Obama. Um, so it would not surprise me. Um, and, and then, of course, he, he you know, the, Schumer has a long history with Trump. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if there's somewhat more Senate comedy between the Democrats and Trump than we would have expected ex ante. That is that that's a very interesting dilemma for Mitch McConnell, who um, doesn't really have any any. Um, good fellowship with Trump to spare and who has been, I mean, I mean, look, Mitch McConnell's not ever effusive about anything, but, um, <laughs> you know, compared with sort of Ryan's post-election statements, McConnell, um, that, that's going to be, that's going to be a very interesting, and to, you know, honestly, McConnell's going to have a rough ride because, you know, 5149 is a very small majority in the Senate. Mm -hmm. So in fact, um, did actually, I don't even know the final numbers in the House. Did the Republicans lose seats in the yes, House, or did they gain? Uh, the they last did. I saw, they lost eight. Right. I mean, which again, they still have a majority, but it's worth remembering that you know they actually are going to be weaker after this election than before. Right. And and again, at least in Congress, um, though the 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 two the two Senate seats that were lost, it's, it's interesting. Um, Mark Kirk and Kelly Ayotte were very full-throated interventionists on international issues, but on domestic issues, yep. they were two of the of the less hardline. Um, you know, yes. it's a it's a the the less sorry they were two of the less hardline Republicans. So it's a right. it's an interesting also back. Yeah, and to be fair, like someone like Ayotte, who you might disagree with, actually did care about foreign policy. Again, there's there's always two dimensions here. I think you need to talk about, which is the hawkish, dovish one, and then whether they actually care about this stuff or not. Right. So, you know, just the, the last thing I, I want to say here is that it's very easy at this moment to say, oh, you know, Republicans hold all three houses. This is going to be boring and awful. But but in fact, you know, just in the course of this conversation, there's just huge divisions on international issues. I think you and I should in a month maybe do a whole show on trade. I, I don't I don't feel like we know enough to talk about it yet. But boy, that's right. going to be fascinating. Yes, yes, it will be. Um, which I think actually gives rise to the last thing you wanted to talk about, which is the the question of whether the ethics of serving in a Trump administration if you were a Republican who was opposed to Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean we we've given viewers quite a lot, quite a lot on that on that already, and and I mean as as I said, um, there is this just intense and really painful 
set of conversations going on on the Democratic side right now about how much how much loyalty do we as citizens owe to somebody who spent his campaign so much of his campaign appearing to advocate um, illegal and deeply ethically problematic things. Um, so, so I want to, you know, rather than appearing to gloat over this dilemma as an, as an outsider, I want to say that I feel like we're all, all of us who, all of us who thought that Trump meant at least some of what he said are, are struggling with some version of this dilemma at this point, that what is, what is citizenship? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, I hate to do this. I'm going to quote Peter Thiel, which is, I think there's two issues going on here. The first is, as Peter Thiel pointed out, I think in the end correctly, that the thing about Trump is that when the media, you know, the media reported Trump took his words literally, but not substantively, whereas Trump supporters took his words substantively, but not literally, if that makes sense, which is that the, the, the media tended to focus on the things he actually said without thinking about what the philosophy was behind them, whereas potentially as vo the voters didn't take what he said literally, but understood the message he was trying to send. Um, and I think to some extent that the question that, you know, going forward that, that Republicans who are interested in, you know, public service and interested in, in advancing the American interest and, and, but nonetheless have serious qualms about Donald Trump and the way he went about it during the campaign need to ask themselves, what is the best way, uh, you know, can they serve in a Trump administration and still look at themselves in the mirror in the morning. Um, and I think in the end, it really is legitimately going to come down to who they wind up appointing at the cabinet level. Because I do think they can send a signal one way or the other in terms of what, how much of Trump's rhetoric was not really, was just rhetoric and how much does he actually intend to, to pursue. Um, so, I, you know, it, there's a lot of reasons why people would want to serve an administration. There's obviously individual career ambitions. There's Again, the fact that you really believe in this, um, there's the fact that, that you want to get some experience because, as you say, you know, it's in everyone's interest for both parties to have a deep national security bench. Um, but I think the jury is still out, and I think we're going to have to talk a month from now about, you know, presumably by that point we should have a better sense of, of who Trump's, you know, national security cabinet's going to look like and what does that mean. Well, I'll just, I'll, um, I, I don't think Peter Thiel was, I thought I, I thought it was Yair Rosenberg who said that, but I I oh, agree with it. I thought it was Peter well, Thiel, but okay. I agree with it as a critique of the media. Um, mm -hmm. At the same time, you know, the KKK folks who want to have a victory rally in North Carolina, and the stories you're seeing all over the place about um, actually a friend of a friend had to go get her son out of school because other kids in the school were saying, Trump won, we can lynch you now. Um, the, the, so the sort of cutesy formulation that you quoted doesn't take into account the, the really real impact both here and, yeah. and around the world of, of what was said. Um, I'm going to a solidarity rally at a mosque this afternoon at which I understand there will be local Republican officials present as well as the Attorney General of, of Virginia, which is a great thing. And I keep I keep hoping and this would be, you know, my request of anybody who who is going to serve. And I certainly understand why somebody would is really, you know, take some affirmative steps to 
to to heal and and reassure and reach out to your your fellow citizens who are however the rhetoric was meant it is having real negative consequences in the in the lives of our of our fellow citizens and that's you know just as we should care and we should be visibly doing more than we were for our fellow citizens who feel left behind and express that by voting for Trump. You know, the, the obverse is also true. And I, I keep yeah. hoping to see, you know, more Republicans of goodwill taking a page from George W. Bush, frankly, and really, really reaching out to, to the communities that are most that are most of this is one of Bush's best qualities. Yes, as president. it is. And, yeah. and I mean, actually, this is I'd love to see him out there doing this. I mean, I know hmm. he's been you know, very reticent in his post presidential life, but this would actually be a real role he could take on now. So with that, well, with that, on that note, um, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Um, may you have many things to be thankful for. And we will see you in a month. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to Blogging Heads TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Blogging Heads episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at bloggingheads.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.